0: Good afternoon and thank you for joining us. My name is Robin Maggio representing the National Resource Center on ADHD and I'd like to welcome you to our webcast, Your Student Was Admitted, Now What?, with guest expert Michelle Elking. The National Resource Center on ADHD is a partnership between CHAD and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention that serves as the national clearinghouse for the latest evidence-based information on ADHD. Today's webcast is part of our Ask the Expert series, giving the community access to lead clinicians, researchers, and other ADHD professionals. If you have additional questions about today's topic or are looking for further information and resources about ADHD, we have health information specialists available Monday through Friday between 1 and 5 p.m. Eastern Time. You can reach them at 800-233-4050. It is a pleasure to introduce today's guest expert, Michelle Elking. Ms. Elking serves as director of the Academic Success Center at Tulane University. In 2012, she started Tulane's success coaching program to support students in the areas of academic, personal, and professional achievement. The program expanded into the center it is today, which offers an array of services led by both professional staff and peer educators. Both Ms. Elking and the Success Coaching Program have been recognized for their achievements. Once again, we are pleased to welcome this afternoon's guest expert, Michelle Elking.
1: Hi, everyone. Thank you. It's great to be here today and speak about a topic which is really very timely. Um, In my current role, I'm having similar conversations with students and their families as they prepare to start college. So my intention for today is whether you're a parent, Junior educator, My hope is that this presentation will provide you with some information and resources to assist with the high school to college transition. So let's get started. I've included an image of this newlywed couple after a wedding, and I wanted to share this because I think it's a significant milestone event, very similar to what people are doing in preparation for the college process. So much planning leads into that big day or the sort of acceptance letter, admissions, testing, campus visits, but what do you do once you're admitted? How do you prepare for the aftermath, so to speak? In the college setting, we see an initial honeymoon period. For us, it usually lasts about three to four weeks, and then the shock or challenge of adjusting to the new environment may sit in for students. We know that challenges in executive function and emotional regulation make transitions even more difficult for students with ADHD. Research also shows students with ADHD often seek help only after things aren't going well. So this might mean it's closer to the midpoint of the semester before students realize that they need support. In my work, I've seen this to be true. So what I'd like to focus on today is how a combination of advanced preparation, open communication, and a strong support system can help to set your student up for success. That begins, I think, with strong preparation and scaffolding. So really, thinking about first, what self-advocacy skills does my student have? As caretakers, which responsibilities do you currently absorb? Once you're no longer there, who will take those responsibilities on going forward? What will your student do? who will need to make up the difference. This may include everything from waking in the morning, medication management, finances, doing laundry, appointment reminders, et cetera. I think it's important to start scaling back support while your child is still at home and give them the space to grow and learn in this safe environment. Consider where your student will need the most support and which resources on campus or in the surrounding community can offer that support. I also caution you to be mindful of allowing for what I consider a fresh start. Many students may feel stigmatized or isolated um, and may consider just completely getting off of medication or abruptly changing existing supports or scaffolding that may have been in place. It's typically recommended that we mimic supports from high school into college for at least the first semester or first year. I also recommend establishing local support in the area, whether that's at the institution itself or, as I mentioned, in the surrounding community. We'll talk about this a little bit later, but these things may include coaching, counseling, medication management, tutoring, working closely with a point of contact or trusted person, which often can be an academic advisor on campus. It's important to discuss these things, these topics, with your student in advance. You may want to consider role playing scenarios, helping your student to prepare for those difficult conversations with professors or staff members. Perhaps establishing points of contact with different offices within the institution. Always using open-ended questions, it's better to coach your student instead of relaying information directly. To talk a little bit about the shift in responsibilities, I've um, created a couple of charts, it's a lot of information, so I want you to have this for reference. I'm going to go through some of these slides rather quickly. But the big difference, I think, between high school and college, as I mentioned, many times parents and teachers are taking on the responsibilities to remind students of certain tasks. In college, students must manage all of that on their own and set their own priorities. Students are usually directed and corrected if behavior will not lead to success, whereas in college they must take full responsibility for decisions. Seeking academic support in high school may involve teachers who check regularly on students who appear to be struggling. In college, students are expected to ask for help from a professor if they feel like they're falling behind. And in high school, teachers may not be mindful of, or they are actually mindful of, of, or perhaps can be, of not overloading, overloading students with the work. Whereas in college, it's really up to the student to figure out how to balance work, life, and social obligations. When we look at students who have ADHD, this can be extremely challenging. Um, Again, as I mentioned, the executive functioning piece can get in the way. Forgetting about appointments or assignments, feeling um, sort of anxious or avoiding certain tasks. Delayed gratification can be a challenge as well. In terms of daily structuring and scheduling, in high school, students have very designated hours where they're expected to be in class and in school, sort of this imposed structure that's created for them. College has an abundance of free time, and we'll talk about that a little later on in the presentation. They have freedom to select courses, which is great. Um, It uh, can also be overwhelming for the ADHD student who really doesn't know what they're meant to be doing or what the future may hold for them. So overwhelmed with endless possibilities. They may think um, strategically in terms of the class selection. um, They may need assistance in thinking strategically and turning passions into career options. They may not be sure how to maximize time between classes, which can further be complicated with the medication management piece. It may be difficult to find areas of interest or judge length of assignments. In terms of identifying supports, Another difference would be sort of the legal changes that happen around accommodations. In high school, students um, are really sort of set up by the school system through IEP or 504 process for classroom accommodations, testing environments, and other required settings. College that changes where the student must self-advocate. Students have to self-identify to the Office of Disability Services or Office of Accessibility to advocate for their needs with regard to accommodations. In high school, students are not expected to keep up up with graduation requirements. And in college, it's really, again, the onus is on the student to clarify, ask questions, and take ownership of their own academic planning. An example of this might be difficulty with the forethought, might prohibit arranging testing accommodations for an upcoming exam. Overwhelm or anxiety can cause avoidance or procrastination. And with regard to learning environments and instruction, high school usually is a much smaller setting. I mean, many students that I work with come from smaller schools where the student-to-teacher ratio is, is, is pretty significantly smaller. In the college setting, it's not uncommon for students to be in large lecture classes of 100 or more students. Um, professors may not be aware that students are not engaged. The students need to be thinking about how to really help uh, prepare them and work to create an environment where they're going to be engaged in that process. In high school, teachers have been trained in teaching theories and helping students learn the material. In college, professors are really experts in their fields and researchers who are there to uh, share knowledge with students. Students must draw connections on their own. The biggest difference, I think, And to sum it up, I'd like to sort of quote one of my um, coaches. I have a staff member who shares with her students, that really high school is a teaching environment while college is a learning environment. Again, the onus is on the student to navigate and advocate. So let's take a look at how you can begin to help your student do so. I find with colleges, It's less about the size of the institution and more about how each office or department works to support students in a collaborative manner. You may want to find out how the school works to break down silos to communicate and collaborate effectively. And I understand the next big step can be overwhelming and each university has their own supports and processes for assisting students with ADHD and learning differences. Again, a proactive approach is important. The resources are there and it's about empowering your student to take ownership of the process. Here are some sample questions you could ask the institution to assess resources and receptivity. You may wanna consider what supports are available on campus to help my child start college successfully. What well, you wanna listen for are early identification programming or programs that target common student difficulties. If a child begins to struggle With academic concerns, what programs do you have on campus to support them in regaining academic satisfactory status? This might involve mid-semester programming or looking at points of contact in various offices. Some institutions use early alert systems or concern reporting to help triage concerns. So let's take a moment to evaluate how you can help your student create a strong support network. When I'm meeting with incoming freshmen, I like to ask some basic questions to help assess what it looked like for them in high school. So really thinking about what did it take for you to be successful previously? What type of academic support did you use? Perhaps a learning specialist, did you work with an ADHD coach or tutors? Did you rely on teachers or your parents to assist? How did you balance your time or schedule? Again, I think, I recommend scheduling these options and coordinating service prior to the start of classes. Let's talk through each area and what options may be available to your student at your institution. To starting with academic support, the academic advising piece is so important because in most institutions, this is gonna be the main point of contact that your student will have. Some institutions use uh, faculty advisors as well and academic advisors assist students with all sorts of academic planning um, options, from major selection to strategic registration, looking at exploratory advising options and assessment tools as well. So for students with ADHD, we know that they have a lot of creativity, multiple talents and interests. And one of the things that we use here in our um, campus, we have advisors that work across different majors and curricula. We also have advisors that work really specifically with ADHD students who are in an exploratory phase. They're not really sure what they want to do. Um, And so it's sort of getting a sense for what are their interests, what are their values, what are the things that they are strong in academically, and where are the areas where they need to improve. We also have sort of a core curriculum flexibility. So thinking about at that institution, what would it look like if my student, are interested in, business or engineering? What are the programs that are a little bit more prescriptive and what are the ones that allow for um, more flexibility across different majors? All of these things are important to think about because what we know about ADHD are students who are going to be highly motivated are also really, str- well, I should say interest and motivation are very closely connected. I mean, if they feel good about what they're studying and they're interested in it, then they're going to be more inclined to perform well. And, and, and sort of meet those academic goals. With regard to other academic areas, um, you know, the Office of Accessibility or Office of Disability can assist, as I mentioned, with accommodations. They may also have a learning specialist or consultant on staff. They may offer strategic learning workshops or help students to coordinate assistive technology that they may need in and outside of the classroom. Faculty are a great resource. I can. Um, recommend this enough students who meet with faculty early on and establish that relationship are really in a a better position um, especially if they're going to be meeting with them to discuss accommodations it gives them the perfect opportunity to go to office hours and make those initial connections there may be a faculty mentoring program if your student is really um, interested in working closely with a professor for research or looking at different internship options, that initial relationship or building that initial contact can be really important in the beginning. There's also various, uh, whether you call them success or learning centers or resource centers, different institutions have those. And that's basically academic support. So thinking about content-specific tutoring, um, looking at are those group sessions, are they one-on-one individualized sessions? Does the institution have assistance with writing support? You know, long, large projects can be difficult for students with ADHD, so thinking about um, what are the different points in time or what are the courses that may be necessary for them to receive assistance with writing. Um, Many universities offer a program called Supplemental Instruction. This is a great program. Basically, this involves a student who has done really well in the course they're invited back in by a faculty member to hold review sessions several times throughout the week. Um, and the idea is that they're really sort of flipping the classroom and letting the students lead the discussion. So it's minimal instruction, but it's really student-focused, student-led learning. Uh, as we found here, and I think other institutions can say the same, students who participate in SI receive a, a higher grade in that course relative to their non-SI peers. And there's also there could be peer mentoring or coaching, which can assist students in just the general transition with regard to um, establishing social circles, getting involved on campus, just general roommate ch- or relationship challenges. There's so many things that a peer mentor or coach can assist students with. Some universities have uh, ADHD specific mentors. There are even some organizations, such as eye to eye, different campuses that work to um, provide community support as well. And finally, what I really enjoy talking about would be uh, the coaching piece. I'm an ADHD coach. I've worked for the last um, eight years specifically with college students. Um, And so thinking about coaching, it's a wonderful resource for your student. uh, Because really what ADHD coaching does, we educate and lend support towards self-management. And we look at strategies that will minimize ADHD challenges and optimize strengths. Um, and that all coaching programs are, you know, there's an array of different programs on campuses. Some focus really specifically on academics um, or the tactical side of coaching, which is great in that there are strategies and there's a planning. But what we know about ADHD, it's not necessarily about getting things done, it's why aren't they getting done, what's getting in the way. And oftentimes, That's sort of the emotional regulation piece. So with our particular program and the models that we use, we really focus on the who. We focus on the what and how as well, but the who is really important. So looking at old habits, belief systems, thought patterns, what could get in the way. Um, And when we're thinking about that, it's important because as I mentioned, we know emotion and motivation are so closely connected. Students have to feel good about what they're doing to initiate and have that follow through. Moving on to personal support. So I think it's important to talk about self-care. I often work with students on building a strong foundation, because we know that symptoms are exacerbated when self-care isn't honored. And the things that I think are non-negotiable are really sleep hygiene, physical activity, nutrition, and stress management. I've seen this in my work with students, and I've seen it in my own family. Thinking about mind-body connection is important. When self-care isn't prioritized, it can really feel like the wheels are coming off and it's difficult to get it together. In coaching, we also work with students who may be involved in um, in counseling as well. If there are other challenges that are coming up related to the transition around overwhelm, there could be some shame, anxiety, fear, or depression, students may get stuck, um, and this may be related to a number of things, as well as family or origin concerns, substance issues, Um, So those two services or these two models really work well together. Um, One thing that I, I usually see students who benefit really well from is cognitive behavioral therapy and counseling and coaching, so that's a good pairing. The other things that would be important to consider, if your student has been working with a clinician and you know that that's something that you want to continue, I think it is a great idea to have that local support established. I've seen students who um, may choose to Skype with certain uh, therapists or coaches. And I think that that's fine if, you know, I get that there's a relationship there they want to continue, but I think there's a strong benefit of having someone local. You would want to talk with your institution about what that uh, service looks like. How often would my student be able to meet with the counseling department? Are there a, 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 Is there sort of a limit to the number of sessions that they get? Um, And that's where you would want to take a look at community providers. Most institutions could help you or assist you with that process, be able to provide referrals that are close to campus or in the surrounding community. Um, Again, thinking about what are the other things that could possibly come up. In the event that there there is a crisis situation or your student needs more um, intensive support, you usually want to contact the case management or genius student's office for health and safety referrals, or if they're just having challenges navigating the campus and community environment. It's also a great place for self, student self-advocacy. Um, thinking about mindfulness, as I mentioned, we know that that is such a, a really prominent new method to help students with stress management. So some universities have mindfulness programming or collaboratives, looking at fitness classes, yoga, health education. Um, There's even different opportunities uh, such as group work, group sessions. Um, So these are all things that you may want to consider. And then finally, in terms of community support, this really would include the living environment and any social circles your student would be a part of. Um, In terms of the... the the living environment, thinking about what might work, you know, I've talked to students before about, you know, sort of that personal space and creating a safe personal space. We know that sometimes students have a difficult time winding down at night. Sleep becomes a challenge. So if they're used to sleeping by themselves in a room, what would it look like to share a a residence hall, dorm room with someone? How can they recreate those routines for waking and sleeping? what about organizational habits? You, know, you might think about what would be necessary or needed in that room, something like a dry erase calendar, something that we use in coaching a lot, is this concept of a launch pad, which is essentially a basket that can house all the important items, the keys, phone, wallet, that sort of thing. Really creating that space so that, you know, that student feels comfortable and organized from the beginning. Coaching can also assist, as I mentioned, with all of those processes. Um, Thinking about food, meal options. So dietary needs are important. Um, You know, some students may have food allergies, whether it's, you know, gluten-free or what have you. Thinking about how to get quick meals and healthy snacks, something that they'll be able to keep on them if they're running out the door and don't have time for breakfast, something high protein, low sugar, Um, You know, we know that there are millions of neurons in the gut which influence neurotransmitters in the brain. We know that what you eat impacts how you feel and think. Sometimes students may not want to eat throughout the day because medication may prohibit that, but I I always encourage uh, students to keep a snack with them. They can eat in between classes. Thinking about those things are important. Uh, Discussing finances or budgeting. Uh, that's something that your student is going to be responsible for, thinking about what that would look like um, month to month. Again, very open with communication and establishing those sort of expectations from the beginning. Um, Student organizations and involvement. So there's usually so many different ways that a student can get involved on campus, whether it's through uh, intramurals or co-curricular activities, student organizations, service opportunities. It's almost, there's almost sort of this, overwhelming abundance of things to do. And so that's, I think, thinking about what are the, the areas of interest that are very strong, what are the values that your student has, and how can they round out the academic experience with these other things. In um, looking at time, one of the things that I like to talk about with, with my students, are, you know, say, for example, you have uh, a 15-hour course load, you know, some students may be taking 18, some may be taking 12, but looking at like, say, 15, if you think about time in and out of class, really that's about 30 hours a week. So you consider it would be like three hours per credit hour. Um, and breaking that down over the course of a week, you know, you think about, you know, that's that's about 82 hours of down, downtime. If you think 16 hours in a day are free with eight hours, say eight, eight hours of sleep. Um, so, you know, with 82 hours of downtime, How will you best use that time between academic, social, et cetera? So there again is there's sort of this abundance of time that they may not have had in high school. So thinking about how to really maximize those personal and academic um, opportunities. Uh, It's important to choose wisely. I think in the beginning, especially in the first semester, first year, um, you don't want to sort of get overcommitted or overinvolved. Uh, but it's, you know, having those kinds of conversations to think about what makes sense is, is really key. And then finally, some sample questions. Uh, I think it's important to just prepare for ups and downs. You know, stu- students are going to hit roadblocks. It's inevitable. Um, how your student chooses to respond is key. I think if you're familiar with any of the work by Carol Dweck on growth mindset or Dr. Marley Adams, the learner versus judger model, this is very similar. You know, at such crossroads, we know the benefits of a mindful pause in this moment. We know that pausing to pay attention to what you're paying attention to, you know, whether it's positive or negative, makes a difference. And as coaches, we work with students to pause and choose an attentional response instead of reacting from emotional dysregulation. We know that rumination and negative mindset can set in due to an overactive amygdala in the brain. However, there are strategies to help. Um, it's important to remember that their sense of urgency isn't necessarily your sense of urgency. So questions can help create thoughtful, mindful dialogue about choices and next steps. This can help guide you to guide your student in the most appropriate resource. Why questions? Well, I think neuroscience tells us that there when people are able to connect and remember and activate on something on their own, when they derive that information, it's really more powerful than that information being given to them by someone else. So this idea of active versus passive learning. And here's some sample questions that you can use with your students throughout the course of the first semester. I'm thinking about, you know, how's your living situation? What about your roommate? How are your instructors? What areas of interest that you have? Are you using office hours? What supports are you utilizing? Um, what's your level of motivation? You know, scale from one to five and thinking about what that would look like. What would if it's a two, what would make it a five? What do you need to do to get there? Um, what are the important academic deadlines? This is really this is really important. So knowing, you know, what is the last day to add? What's the last day to drop? What about re- registration? Thinking about how your student will get involved on campus. So these are just, again, ways to get the dialogue going, get the lines of communication open with your stu- student. Um, so finally, I'm... This is the last slide, and I just wanted to sort of talk about takeaways. Um, You know, what are you leaving with today and thinking about how can you best support your student through the transition? The key pieces I really think are, uh, you know, setting goals and expectations of and for college, thinking about academic and personal pursuits as well as those strong support systems or networks, how often you should communicate with with your student, how often you should communicate with the college and what that could look like. And then finally, environmental changes. Um, again, thinking about what's necessary uh, in the residence hall with regard to organizational habits, food, sleep hygiene, medication management, etc. So that's what my presentation. I thank you for your time. And now I'll take any questions that you may have.
0: Our first question is, are going to be about the application process. So, should students disclose that they have an ADHD diagnosis when they're applying to college?
1: That's a great question, um, and I've you know I've heard a variety of different responses. So I think it's a very personal decision. Um, i I've, I've talked to students who felt like it was such an integral part of the process and knowing and being very open to what that university has to offer. It was essential in in disclosing that with an academic admissions counselor or representative. I've also had other students who who really shy away and their families shy away from that. So I don't think that there's a right or wrong answer necessarily. I think it's based on personal values.
0: Okay, great. What about, is there specific documentation across the board that students need to receive accommodations at most colleges? Is there, are there general Forms that um, parents should have prepared?
1: Sure, yeah, so there um, have been some recent changes um, with regard to ADA, and I think it's a little bit more flexible now. But typically in the last several years, um, what the offices are looking for, Office of Accessibility, is um, an evaluation, psychoeducational evaluation in the last two years. Perhaps um, a copy of the I- IEP or 504 plan or any uh a common, uh, supporting documentation that the student may have, um, e- perhaps even if they had accommodations for the SAT or any standardized testing, um, and all that should be submitted in advance to that particular office.
0: Okay, great. As a follow-up to that, we have a participant who's asking, are there any IEP services that actually carry through to college, or how does how does that work?
1: So that, yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, it's very discretionary and it, there's not necessarily anything that carries through exactly. I think there are common accommodations, particularly for ADHD that that universities may give and those would include typically extended time on tests. So that might be uh, time and a half or double time, perhaps uh, testing in a distraction-reduced environment um, so a, a separate testing location, maybe a note taking assistance. Um, in the, in some cases, it would be housing accommodations, maybe a placement in a single house, a housing situation, or permission to live off campus. Uh, maybe assistive technology, so permission to audio record lectures or use of computer in class. Um, in some cases, there may be um, due to processing a foreign language waiver, but it's very individualized uh, to the individual and it's, it's very individualized to the institution.
0: Okay, great. Um, we have a couple questions about if you know of, are there any lists that parents can access as far as recommending colleges that um, provide good programs for students with ADHD and learning disabilities?
1: There, there actually are, um, I've seen articles in the last few months, um, that, you know, there are a number of schools that, you know, offer more support than others, and there are a number of schools that just have uh, resource centers or learning centers uh, that may work closely with their Office of Disability Services, which is similar to what we do, it's sort of uh, a partnership across divisions to support those students. Um, a simple Google search can pull up those lists. Um, there's, you know, schools tend to appear commonly, um, again and again on those lists.
0: Okay, great. Um, we have a question. Who a parent is asking about his son, and I'm sure this comes up for other parents as well. But um, he doesn't want to do anything at the beginning of the school year. He wants to wait and see how it goes. Um, and they say oftentimes that translates into waiting too long to get help, and at that point it's just a little too late. Um, do you have any suggestions on how to approach a, a child with, in this situation, a college student in this situation?
1: Sure. Yeah, I, I actually have this conversation quite often and I think, you know, what I usually say is, is there's a, a way to go ahead and kind of establish these connections and I think it's a good thing whether you wind up needing them or not to just have them in place. So For example, with the Office of Accessibility, uh, if you submit all the paperwork and get the accommodations activated, then the student can decide throughout the semester when and where and how often they want to use those or if they want to use them at all. If they don't set them up in the beginning, then they run the risk of not being able to get everything processed through in a timely manner, as you mentioned. So I think just relaying this idea that you can set Set the context up, set up the resources, um, and then it's very discretionary when and how you choose to use those.
0: Okay, great. Thank you. We now have a question that is asking about FERPA. And so one of the questions is um, it's from a parent and saying, you know, when their children are college age, they're 18 years old, and they don't necessarily have to sign a release. Or, um, their parents to receive the information do you have any suggestions on um, either a parent sort of how to talk with your college student on to allow them to sign that release so that you can receive information or on the flip side if they don't sign that release how you can get information from them
1: yeah that's it's a really great question um, so yeah FERPA Basically dictates that, as you mentioned, once the student turns 18, they they own their academic record. And so, um, you know, this is something that I definitely I didn't bring this up in the presentation, but I'm glad this question came up. It's important to have that conversation about. So I think, um, you know, depending on how involved the parents are throughout high school, and um, thinking about what would perhaps be necessary in that first semester talking to the student about um, what would be the parameters if they do sign the waiver what are the things that they would be reaching out to the the institution for and what are the things that the student would be advocating for on their own so um, one example that i can think of And to avoid sort of this triangulation, I think it's good to have that open communication. It might involve having an initial conversation with the student and then subsequently having a a conversation with the advisor, three, the parent, the advisor, and the student to get on the same page so that their lines of communication don't become sort of one-sided. And I think that's where the challenge comes in when the, the sort of key partners aren't open in the process and aren't transparent. Uh, you might say to the, stu- to the student, well, you know, in the event that, you know, by midterms, if, if the grades aren't reflective or if academic alerts or concerns are coming through, um, you know, that might be a situation where the parent is going to get more involved. So I think it's about setting those parameters up front. Uh, institutions may present this information in a variety of ways. You may have the opportunity to address this through a school that's summer orientation, um, or this might. There's always an opportunity throughout the course of their time to sign the waiver or pull the waiver. So this is sort of, you know, it's very fluid.
0: Um, what about? Do you have any tools um, that can help a parent determine if their child is ready to attend college?
1: Yes. Um, so that's that's a great question. Um, You know, I think looking at—I don't have any specific tool necessarily. I mean, I think looking at sort of what are the 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 ability, like, so students' ability to self-manage and self-advocate, and thinking about what's existing for them at, at this current point. What schools they're looking at? Does it make sense for them to be local or looking at? Schools that are farther away, that could potentially be a barrier. Um, so, you know, I will say this I have been a very strong proponent for a gap year in some situations because I think with delayed maturation, we know that uh, students who are coming in in the first year might be three to five years behind, you know, developmentally. And there's nothing wrong with taking a gap year. So, um, I think that is something to definitely discuss. With your student, there's a lot of opportunities to um, you know do a variety of work oppor- you know, work experiences and internships or develop those life skills. Um, I can't think of a specific tool or an assessment, but I think having kind of that conversation to assess where they are and what their level of readiness and academic preparedness, that's kind of the key thing as well.
0: Great. We actually have someone who asked about their son who took a gap year. And do any of these tips and suggestions you've given, do they differ for students who might have taken a gap year versus entered college right after finishing high school?
1: Yeah, that's great. I think, you know, the difference might be, depending on what they did in the gap year, they, if they're not doing something that's academically oriented, if it's something that's more just experiential, work-related, um, thinking about how do they kind of get back in the swing of things to be focused academically, you know, that would be something to really assess and, and help your student prepare. Um, but if they've been sort of working in an environment where they are continuously learning and um, working in sort of an educational setting. I think that a lot of the things that I talk about are very applicable.
0: Great, thank you. What about um, we have a couple of questions that have come in about college students entering their second year of college. Do you have any general pearls of wisdom about students entering that second
1: year? Yes. So second year is interesting because I find that um, you know you have a, a couple of situations that can come up. Sometimes students because they had a difficult transition, didn't perform to the degree that they wanted to in the first year. So in second year, they're really coming in with a level of readiness. You know, they might be uh, ready and willing to commit to something like the coaching process. They know what they need, and they're ready to make those sort of goals happen. Um, They might be more aware of their academic strengths and interests, so a lot of times students are uh, looking at declaring a major at the end of the second year. So they may be more focused academically because they've, been having, they've had an opportunity to sort of experiment with different classes and look at their academic strengths and interests to find out what's gonna really suit them in terms of a major. Um, so those are some, some common situations. Um, there's also the interesting thing about the second year is you know, it's it's not like the first year, but there's a lot of excitement and enthusiasm around coming in. Um, and yet, you know, it's before junior year where students start thinking about perhaps maybe study abroad or internship opportunities. Uh, so there, there can be a little bit of uh, – there's some students that might might feel a little lost in the process, like trying to figure out where they fit in. Um, and so that's where I think really close contact with what I call a trusted person on campus would make a really strong difference. Um, so through our our program, we assessed, like looking at our data, we found that students who are the most connected to the university, who felt the most engagement, have established this trusted person. Like I said, it could be an academic advisor, it could be a, a coach, it could be someone in the Office of Student Accessibility, or someone in Student Affairs or Organization, student organization leader, faculty member, so thinking about what what is necessary for those students to really engage if they're feeling a little bit of that disengagement.
0: Great. Thank you. Those were some great tips. Um, we have one specific situation that this parent has asked about, and it's for a student either in their first year of college or maybe they've even completed a year, but they've received all these accommodations, and they're... Still flunking out, or they're they're just not succeeding. So, any suggestions on what to do next? Um, their ideas were should should they pull him from the college? Should they continue with that college and search for a different major? Is the, are there any suggestions you have? Yeah, that's
1: it's you know I'm thinking of, of, of several different areas. It's hard to know um, specifically what the situation is. It could be it could be about academic fit. It could be um, that the student isn't in the right classes or in the right major, things that aren't engaging or are in line with academic strengths, um, or you know maybe that's there, you know sort of like this idea that we see where students are coming in from high school and they may feel that they're equipped um, from sort of a learning or academic standpoint, but. We often see that even for high-ability students who performed well, when they're in a new environment or in the college environment, and the academic rigor is higher. They they don't have sort of the foundational uh, learning or testing skills that are necessary. So this student might be putting forth a lot of effort but not seeing the results. So if they haven't looked at tutoring or working with a learning specialist, that might be a route to take as well. Um, you know, I think speaking, like I said, with uh, someone in that learning support center or in the advising office that could help kind of guide to figure out what are the, the options with regard to that particular student's academic progress or academic plan.
0: Great. Thank you. Um, what about the parent's role once their child is at college? Um, we have a couple of questions that have come in, sort of can they contact professors, can they contact... Um, support service organizations, will college talk to parents, sort of how can they still work with the college and the student if they feel that is necessary?
1: That's a great, those are great questions. Um, It's tricky, I think, like I said, part of what I was talking about in this presentation is scaffolding and really recreating or mimicking high school as much as possible. And at the same time, we know that this College is really the place where students build that autonomy and they, they self-advocacy, and all of those things. Uh, we don't want to sort of rip the band-aid off and let, you know, like leave them stranded if they've had a lot of support. So I think trying to figure out in the beginning what are the, what are the sort of situations that might necessitate me reaching out to someone, um, and also being very mindful of you know, what the university is able to communicate. So again, going back to FERPA, you know, even if your student signs the consent form, there are certain things that officials may be able to provide in a very general manner but can't disclose specifics unless there's a health or safety concern. With regard to perhaps coaching, which is my area, I'll give you an example, We, you know, we sort of follow the, we, we do follow the International Coach Federation guidelines, so that means we're putting the student in the driver's seat, the student is taking student is taking ownership, um, and the student can decide how they would like, you know, whether it's parent or another resource involved, we ask them. And oftentimes they'll say, I need my parents to be involved initially, it's okay for you to communicate with them. I want them to know about my progress, and over time, we can kind of step back on that, but again, it's sort of it, we leave that up to the up to the student. I would caution against contacting professors. I don't think that that's a it's a it's a good method. Um, I think that's really up to the student to do that piece. If you have concerns specifically about courses or faculty, I think it's better to go through perhaps a Uh, department or the dean's office or the advisor to do that, along with the student, keeping the student involved in those communications.
0: Okay. Thank you. What about just sort of back to some of your coaching that you've talked about? Um, So, one of the questions we have is that we've talked about, so how ADHD kids sometimes get stuck. Um, So, do you have any suggestions on how to help them move forward?
1: Sure. I mean, thinking about um, what well, with stuck is that is it about um, are they having anxiety? Is it is it is it about something more tangible? Sometimes students get stuck when it comes to sort of the planning, the initiation, uh, you know, and follow through on a project. Perhaps it's a long research paper. Um, and I think coaching can really help because what we do is sort of bottom line what's going on, um, thinking about, you know, what what would it look like if you could do X? How would you feel if you could perform in this area? Um, think about a time in high school when you were able to do this. What did that look like? How did you pull yourself through? I mean, sort of really recreating the positive emotional experience because I think what happens in the transition is, you know, so much excitement and enthusiasm, and um, you know, all of these things are happening, and that's sort of wonderful, and it's great, and that's what that's what they should be doing in the first year. And then at the same time, there can be sort of—I uh, don't sort of I hesitate to say—but sort of magical thinking, and not really being aware of like all that's involved. And then when the reality hits, it feels very, very like there's a lot of shame and there's a lot of anxiety and there's a lot of fear. So what we do is help to really redirect that and get them back to a place where they can recognize their strengths and they're really focusing on what what, what are their values, who they are as a person, what are the things that they do well, and really capitalizing on those things to help them get through the challenges.
0: Great, thank you. We have another situation here where a A child has gotten accepted into college early and he's in the 11th grade and so the parents thought is if he can attend early to get some of the prerequisites out you know they could maybe assist him in that transition Um, have you ever had situations like that do you think it's kind of pushing it to have a high school junior start taking college classes early
1: I think it depends on where if it's a a university that's close to home, if the student is still gonna be at home, um, and depending on the level of maturation, uh, if the student is highly academically engaged, which sounds like that would be the case, and also um, in terms of maturity, able to to sort of navigate uh, the self-management piece, then there could be benefits. Um, I think there could, yeah, I, I would sort of be weary or cautious about if that were, would involve um, being away from, from home and that during that time, uh, again, thinking about the age, the biological age and the neurobiological age, you know, thinking about the challenges that could come in. Um, I've never actually, you know, we've had students who come early. I've never worked actually with a student um, who has ADHD or learning difference um, that's coming in at that point. So I can't speak personally to that um, issue. Okay,
0: thank you. What about not taking a full course load freshman year? Is that something you ever recommend as a way to adjust to the new demands of college?
1: You know, I have. I actually have recommended this in some situations. At, at least I would say um, 12, 12 credit hours, which um, most institutions in here is the is minimum to carry a full-time load. And I think... It's sort of looking at it from a different angle because you might hear from different administrators or uh, staff that it's really important to have to maximize those hours and credits. For some students, that works. They need a full schedule. They need to be able to stay busy and to be very effective. Alternat- like alternatively, some students do really well with twelve credits or dropping down to a part-time status. Um, the caveat would be, you know, if a student is receiving financial aid, that that could be impacted if they drop below full-time status. So that's something to kind of think about. Um, they're, depending on the institution, if they do do 12 or drop below, their student could be taking courses during the summer. Um, again, I think it's very individualized, but I've seen students be very successful with, uh, with lower course loads.
0: Great. Um, now, what about if a, a child does not have an IEP in high school um, prior to college? Can they still get help and get services?
1: That's that's a good question. Um, I think that you know, I, I don't know the. I don't want to provide wrong incorrect information, but I do believe. Um, just recently in talking with a colleague who's the director of our Office of Accessibility that with recent changes, if there's other supporting documentation, at least at our institution that would be considered. They would consider that in the process. So it might be, like I said, uh, supporting docu- Like, And this is common for students who are in small, maybe um, secondary schools where they've been informally accommodated. Uh, students would, you know... Provide them with the extra time or help them out in a certain way. So it it could be sort of detrimental sometimes in that they didn't go through that official process, or if they're at a private school, they didn't have to. So supporting documentation from the school, from the teacher, um, or other uh, clinician or physician could be uh, could be used in support of that that uh, request.
0: Okay, great. What about do you have any suggestions for parents to how to start to give their high school students as their juniors and seniors more of those responsibilities um in high school so that it can maybe help with that transition into college?
1: Yeah, I think that's great. I you know, I recommend um, you know, for example, I I was talking to a family just recently and um it sounded like the student had a very difficult time waking in the morning, just staying up very late at night, and so the the mom was really was like took the lead on getting getting her son up. And I think if you're doing that, you know, five days a week, then thinking about, well, let me let me scale back and do that three days a week and have have him set as an alarm or multiple alarms or whatever. And I think, yeah, you run the risk of him being late for school or doing, you know, maybe not getting assignments there, but in on time, those sorts of things, but you're in a safer space, and um, if you start to kind of let go or sort of scale back on the support and let the student take control over, okay, I'm going to be responsible for taking my medication and setting my alarms or Um, getting to my appointments or, um, you know, getting my gear together for soccer practice or whatever it is, you're still in that safe space because they're in the home environment. If you don't do those things and then in the college setting, um, it's the first time that they're having to do that all on their own, it can be really, really overwhelming and expensive. If you think about trying to do that um, and sort of what that would cost and require if if they're not able to kind of navigate successfully in the college setting.
0: Great, thank you. Well, our final question sort of along that same lines with it being um, potentially overwhelming or students being overwhelming is, do you have any suggestions on how to begin to talk to students about going to college and the college process without overwhelming them and and not, you know, scaring them away from the whole process?
1: Yeah, I think, um, you know what I've heard from different families and in and, and professionals in the field is kind of letting them take the lead. I mean, depending on where they are in the process, you know, which, and sort of academically, um, it's letting them take take the lead and and letting them come to you to discuss kind of what their goals are, or interests. Um, and I know that this, this varies. Some families, that's sort of an expectation that they will. Follow in those footsteps and, and, and go. And in other situations, they might be the first person in the family to, to attempt to go to college. So I think you know it's it's sort of navigating what the conversation could look like with regard to that student's interests. You know what what where are their academic strong suits, or what are the areas that they they excel in? Um, potentially, what kind of you know what would they want to get out of the experience? Is it is it just for um, and sort of enhanced an educational purpose? Is it more vocational in nature? Um, so kind of thinking about that piece as well.
0: Great. Again, thank you so much, Ms. Elking, for your insights and suggestions. And thank you to all of our participants for joining us today. We had some really great questions, and your presentation and discussion uh, was, was really great. We hope that you've enjoyed this edition of our Ask the Expert series. This concludes our webcast.